Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. What do nanotechnology, bioinformatics, artificial intelligence and robotics have in common? And more importantly, what do they have to do with you? In this episode's conversation, Kayla Colbin shares the dramatic implications of exponential technologies and some insight into how we might better prepare ourselves to adapt and thrive in a dynamically changing world. Kayla Colburn is the New Zealand and Australian ambassador for Singularity University, co-founder and chair of the non-profit Ministry of Awesome, curator of TEDx Christchurch and TEDx Scottbase, and a certified EXO consultant. Riding the wave of exponential change, a Florence Guild conversation with Kayla Colburn. Thank you, Marcus and Work Club and Florence Guild for hosting this event. Thank you, George and PauseFest for collaborating with us on this. Um, so excited about what you're doing and really delighted that we have this relationship. Uh, in addition to that uh, extensive introduction that Mahes gave for me, um, I do want to add the most critical thing, which is that I am uh, a Kiwi. I live in New Zealand. I live in Christchurch. I flew in this morning. Uh, I've been in New Zealand 13 years. Uh, I became a citizen in 2013. Uh, and it might seem strange for me to pick on this thing and kind of harp on it, but I feel it's really important to make this clear because I know you can tell from my accent that I'm not originally from New Zealand and the alternative is a little embarrassing just at present. Like I know as soon as I say that I'm from America, what everybody's thinking, which is what the heck is going on over there? <clears throat> and, I, and I bring this up not to make a political point, like there might be people in this room who are Trump supporters, it's none of my business, although we should talk, seriously, uh, but, but more because it's just so surprising that this man is president. Like, it's so surprising that he is in office. Everybody is, he was surprised by this, right? Like, that's not a partisan thing to say. Everybody was surprised by this. Every poll, every pundit, every editorial, like, everybody had this election going the other way. Nate Silver, the guru statistician who rose to fame in the 2012 election for correctly anticipating every one of the 50 states, the morning of the 2016 election, this is how he had it pegged. 71% Clinton, 28% Trump. Everybody got this wrong, except for this fish, <laughs> which correctly ate off of a picture of Donald Trump instead of one of Hillary Clinton. And this artificially intelligent predictive system, which correctly anticipated the results of the election weeks out. So this is the kind of thing that's interesting to me. How is it possible that the humans are getting it so wrong and the computers are getting it so right. So as Mahe said, I'm the Australian ambassador for an organization called Singularity University. Singularity University, it's based in Silicon Valley, housed at the NASA Ames Research Center, and it was founded by these two guys. And these guys are really kind of titans of the tech world. The guy on the right is Peter Diamandis. He started XPRIZE Foundation. XPRIZE Foundation does large cash prizes for extremely ambitious, but extremely well-bounded engineering challenges. So the first one that they did was a $10 million prize for the first private group that could get a manned vehicle to space and back, land it safely, 
and then repeat that feat within two weeks. And that prize is what led to Virgin Galactic, it's what led to SpaceX, like pretty much the entire private space industry was kickstarted by this large cash prize. And they've gone on to replicate this model in all sorts of industries and all sorts of endeavors. They've used it for healthcare, for education, for drought. They found that as a model for spurring investment into R&D and innovation, it's tremendously effective. They put up this large prize, they put up a challenge that is ambitious enough to stir men's souls. And then the teams who are competing will collectively invest anywhere from 10 to 100 times the value of the prize. Think about that for a second. $10 million prize, 100 million to a billion dollars worth of investment in trying to address the challenge. Not only that, but you have hundreds of perspectives on the problem rather than just one. Peter's done all sorts of other things as well. He started International Space University. He started a company called Planetary Resources, which is mining asteroids. Uh, he wrote the bestsellers Bold and Abundance. Uh, a super, super accomplished guy, but the guy on the left is even more relevant to today's conversation. His name is Ray Kurzweil, and he invented everything. <laughs> he invented flatbed scanners. He invented optical character recognition. He invented text-to-speech for blind people. He invented the Kurzweil synthesizer. He's got 21 honorary doctorates. He's received honors from three US presidents. He's written seven books, five of them bestsellers. He's a director of engineering at Google, like total underachiever. But one of the most interesting things about Ray is that they've gone back and looked at the predictions he's made about where technology is going since the late 80s, early 90s. And they found that he has an astonishing 86% accuracy rate, 86%. It's a tremendous achievement. If you think about some of the dramatic technological changes we've seen over the past 20, 30 years, 86%, to the degree that he predicted that by 1998, a computer would beat a human at chess. And of course, in 1997, IBM's Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov to that level of specificity. So when Ray Kurzweil says something about where technology is going, generally worth paying attention to him. So I first got involved with uh, SU, SU we call it, Singularity University, SU. I first got involved with SU uh, almost three years ago now. I attended their executive program. It's a six-day program uh, at their headquarters at NASA Ames. And uh, you know, I'll tell you what, I went there with my kind of TEDx hat on, feeling like uh, part of my job as a curator of a TEDx event is to be across new innovations. It's to pay attention to new technologies as they come on stream. And so I went there feeling like this is going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be awesome but not imagining that it would completely upend the way that I understand the world. But of course, that's exactly what happened. It completely transformed my understanding of the world, my understanding of the nature of technological progression, and my, underst my understanding of the degree of impact that this has on every single one of us. And so I came away kind of transformed, and I shifted pretty much my entire life to helping more people understand this, because every one of us is touched by this. Every single one, our kids, our colleagues, our friends, our family, we're all touched by this stuff. And not enough of us understand this, and we're not having the kind of conversations we have to have. Uh, so my job over the next kind of 20 minutes or so is to boil down everything I learned uh, over those six days into three core insights. And the first one starts with this guy. So this is Gordon Moore. He's one of the co-founders of Intel Corporation. And in 1965, he made the observation that the number of transistors we could fit on an integrated circuit had been doubling every 18 months. And he made a prediction that that number would continue to double every 18 months as far forward as we could see. This became known as Moore's Law. You've probably heard of it. So the first insight comes from Ray Kurzweil, he of the 86% accuracy rate. And what Kurzweil said was, hang on a minute. What if it's not actually about the transistors at all? 
Kurzweil zoomed out on Moore's law. He said, actually, if instead of looking at the number of transistors we can fit on an integrated circuit, we look instead at what we call the price performance of computing. Turns out that number has been doubling for almost 120 years. Starting way back with beginning of computing with electromechanical punch cards, moving on to relays, and then vacuum tubes, and then transistors, and only then integrated circuits. Moore's law is actually the fifth iteration of this underlying doubling paradigm, not the first. Kurzweil called it the law of accelerating returns. Here's another way to think about it. Today, for $1,000, you can buy roughly the number of instructions per second that a mouse brain can process. But according to Kurzweil, by about 2023, six years from now, for $1,000, you'll be able to buy the number of instructions per second that a human brain can process. And by 2049, for $1,000, you'll be able to buy the number of instructions per second of all human brains on the planet combined. This doubling curve explains why you today, via the smartphone in your pocket, have access to more information than Bill Clinton had the entire time that he was president of the United States. I reckon that's why he looks kind of pissed off in this picture. He's like, wish I had an iPhone. Uh, although I'm sure he's super glad Instagram was not a thing when he was around. <laughs> right, so insight number one, it's not about the transistors, it's about the price performance of computing. Insight number two is that it's not just about computing. This doubling phenomenon applies to any technology once it becomes what we call information enabled. Think about something like photography. Photography used to be substrate enabled. It was dependent on the physical film for you to do the thing. And then it became information enabled, dependent instead on ones and zeros. And once that happened, it started to follow a doubling in price performance, much like computing. The first digital camera had a resolution of 0.01 megapixel. Today, you can get a 41 megapixel camera as part of a smartphone, right? So some of the technologies that have become information enabled and are now starting to follow doubling curves, computing, obviously the base one, but also artificial intelligence, robotics, biotechnology, nanotechnology, medicine, neuroscience, energy, all becoming powered by information, powered by ones and zeros, all starting to follow similar doubling curves. So what is so important about a doubling curve? Why should we spend so much time on them? Well, it turns out they have a few characteristics that make them kind of imperative to pay attention to. And the first one is that they look flat for a really long time. And you'll know this if you ever tried to do that trick where you fold a piece of paper in half eight times. Anybody ever try that trick? First fold is easy, second fold is easy, third fold is easy, 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 easy. Like this trick is so dumb, why am I even bothering? It's so easy. And it's not until you hit that sixth, seventh, eighth fold of the paper that things start to get a little crazy. The second characteristic is that our brains are totally not wired for this. We evolved on the savanna chasing prey and running from predators that behaved in a predictable linear fashion. We evolved to understand that a lion could run from this end of the room to that end of the room, not to understand that a lion could run from this end of the room to the moon. And so as a result, the experts continue to predict linear. No matter how much evidence we have to the contrary, Gordon Moore himself twice said that Moore's law was over. Both times proven wrong. Like the guy who invented the law. <laughs> he can't get his own law right. So I don't know what hope the rest of us have, but the difference between something following a linear trajectory and something following a doubling curve is insane. 30 linear steps and we're back out at reception. 30 doubling steps and we're 26 times around the planet. And the tricky thing there is that you're not halfway until the 29th step. So it's really hard to measure progress as you go. I don't think there is a single person in this room, myself included, who could correctly guess where we would be at step 15 of this process. 
Our brains do not work this way. And so when we see technologies that are following doubling curves, we have to be systematic and disciplined in our analysis and our assessment if we want to have a hope of responding effectively to them. When I first uh, came back from SU, I started giving these talks, and I would always include some whiz-bangy technology, like, oh my gosh, can you believe this technology is already here? Isn't that amazing? That's not the critical message I want you to take away from this talk. It's not about what technology is available at any given point in time. That is not the key thing. The key thing is how technology changes over time. And so now that I've been doing this for a while, I've had kind of a front row seat to see what this looks like. And I just want to talk you through it using uh, one example, which is self-driving cars. So, uh, so I came back from SU March of 2015. I start giving these talks. And at that time, most of the people I talked to sort of knew that Google had a self-driving car project on the go. In terms of like public awareness of autonomous vehicles, that's pretty much where we were at. <clears throat> In June of that year, June 2015, Google's self-driving car program hit a million miles traveled total. Awesome accomplishment for Google. In October that year, October 2015, Tesla released a push update to owners of their Model S. This is a Tesla Model S. Push update, meaning it was delivered overnight while you slept, didn't have to do anything to get it. You woke up in the morning and your car had autopilot functionality. And you might have seen videos of people literally asleep at the wheel as their Tesla is driving down the highway. By the way, I do not recommend this. Not a good idea to go to sleep while your Tesla is driving down the highway. Nonetheless. Lots of people did this, and for the most part, they were fine. By May the following year, less than a year after Google had logged a million miles traveled total, Tesla was collecting a million miles of data every 10 hours. By December that year, they had collected more than 1.3 billion miles worth of data. In Christchurch, where I live in December last year, the airport took possession of a self-driving shuttle. Uh, this is it from a French company called Navia in partnership with HMI, which is also doing some work uh, here in Australia. A few months after they took possession of the shuttle, I caught up with the chief executive of the airport, Malcolm. I'm like, Malcolm, what's going on with the shuttle? Does it work? Is it, how's it, are you deploying it? Tell me, get me, get me up to speed. And he's like, Kyla, the shuttle works perfectly. Technology is awesome. The autonomous vehicle, no problem whatsoever. He says, you wouldn't believe what the actual challenges are to taking up this technology. For example, in New Zealand, there's no law that says that you have to have a human behind the wheel of your vehicle. Not because we're particularly forward thinking, largely because we never fathomed that you could ever not have a human being behind the wheel of your vehicle. There is a law that says that you have to have a rego in your front windscreen. So this is an electric vehicle. It's got an electric drivetrain. It goes equally in either direction, doesn't really distinguish between front and back. It effectively has two fronts. You're not allowed to have two regos. <laughs> Again, I don't think the people who made this regulation were intentionally trying to be obstructive when they came up with it. They just never contemplated this scenario. So when I think about what has to come together for mass uptake of a technology, it's not just that the, te that the technology has to be ready. The regulatory environment has to be ready. The market appetite has to be ready. The investment environment has to be ready. When all of those things come together, that's when we hit that inflection point, that sixth, seventh, eighth fold of the paper, and that's when things go from deception into chaos and amazement seemingly overnight. And when I think about what Malcolm and the team at the airport are doing, these guys are not running a pilot for how self-driving shuttles can be deployed at Christchurch Airport. What these guys are doing is paving the way for mass adoption of self-driving cars across New Zealand. Because once those regulatory hurdles are overcome for one person or group, they are overcome for everyone. Recently, Elon Musk came out saying he projects that all new cars will be self-driving within 
10 years. And I just want to highlight how seductive the tendency is to think in linear terms. So when I first saw this headline, I'm like, OK, 10 years, all new cars self-driving. We currently have an inventory of 15 to 20 years of vehicles on the road. Takes that long to kind of cycle through the, the ones that are currently out there. So add those two together, 25 to 30 years from now, all cars will be self-driving. But of course, it's not going to work that way. First of all, you can retrofit an existing vehicle to be self-driving. So you don't need to wait to work through that whole existing inventory. But second of all, the economic models of an electric autonomous vehicle are such that the vast likelihood is that you will switch from driving your own vehicle towards accessing an on-demand fleet of roving vehicles, which is something that Uber is already training us to do, right? We pick up a phone, we push a button, the vehicle pulls up, you get in, it drops you where you need to go, you don't even think about it. You don't worry about parking, you don't worry about insurance, you don't worry about maintenance, you don't worry about cleaning it, you don't worry about drinking and driving, you don't worry about any of those things. And when it becomes cheaper to do this than it does to take the bus, then we're going to see a wholesale shift. And because of this, uh, a think tank uh, called in the US called Rethink X, Tony Seba and James Arbib, a few months ago, they came out with a white paper. They're projecting that 95% of all miles traveled in the US, let me say that again, 95% of all miles traveled in the US will be by autonomous electric vehicle by 2030. That is 13 years from now a wholesale shift in the transport industry, similar to when we shifted from horses to cars in the first place. Right, that's one example. I'll give you another example of this change over time. This is the key thing to take away, change over time. March last year, March of 2016, you might have seen this headline, Deep Minds, AlphaGo, artificially intelligent Go player, beat the world champion Lisa Dole at Go. This was an amazing feat. The number of possible moves in Go is greater than the number of atoms in the universe. This happened fully a decade before the researchers expected it was going to happen. That was March of 2016. Last month, DeepMind came out with a new artificially intelligent Go player. It's called AlphaGo Zero. They pitted AlphaGo Zero against the original AlphaGo. So AlphaGo beat Lisa Dole four games to one. AlphaGo Zero beat AlphaGo 100 games to zero, which is amazing. But even more amazing is how they trained it to do this. So the original AlphaGo, the way that they trained it to play was by feeding it historical game data. They fed it 40 million games of Go. And that AI parsed all that information, extracted patterns from it, was able to figure out what the best move was in any given circumstance. AlphaGo Zero, they didn't feed a single game. They gave it the rules, and they gave it the desired objective. And it played itself 4.9 million times starting with random play, and within three days was the best Go player in the world. When we hit that inflection point, that sixth, seventh, eighth fold of the paper, we go from deception into chaos and amazement so much faster than we're expecting. And most of us are left saying, it came out of nowhere. There's no way we could have known. Right, so insight number one. Not just about the transistors, it's about the price performance of computing. Insight number two, not just about computing, it's about any technology. Once it becomes information enabled, insight number three is that these technologies are now starting to converge. So now we have to consider what happens when an exponential progression in something like artificial intelligence converges with an exponential progression in robotics. And we get super intelligent robots. What happens when an exponential progression in biotechnology or bioengineering converges with an exponential progression in 3D printing at the atomic scale, when we can literally print matter atom by atom. And of course, what happens is that everything accelerates even faster. 
So what does all of this add up to? Huge opportunity. Opportunity to solve for things that we have never solved for before. Opportunity to solve for things like healthcare, for education, for energy, to make these things free and abundant, available to everyone. But all of that opportunity comes along with a not insignificant amount of terror. In 2013, a now famous paper from Frey and Osborne suggested that 47 to 81 percent of jobs, as we currently understand them, would be under threat from technology within 20 years. In 2015, the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia said that it was 40 percent of Australian jobs in 10 to 15 years. That is 2025 to 2030. That is not far away at all. You might have seen this headline from last year, Apple's Foxconn factory in China. They fired 60,000 people, replaced them with robots. This is a terrible story. It's a terrible headline. I don't want to mitigate or diminish or dismiss the impact on these people. These are real humans with real families and real lives. To be fair, 60,000 people in China is kind of a rounding error. But in December last year, Foxconn released a three-part strategy to automate all of their factories. Foxconn employs 1.2 million people. And if you think they can't do this, they absolutely can. This factory in Dongguan in China, they fired 90% of their staff replaced them with robots, they increased output two and a half times, defects down 80%. They went from 650 people to 60 people. And the scary thing here is I look at this headline and I think, okay, if I'm the factory owner or the chief executive, of course I'm gonna buy the robots. You'd be crazy not to. If you're not buying the robots, your competitor is buying the robots and you're going out of business. But that decision that makes total sense at the micro level in aggregate has potentially terrible consequences for society. Again, to be fair though, this headline, this plot line, this narrative, this story, factory workers replaced by automation, for those of us in the Western world, that's a story we've had for over 200 years, right? Like this is something we're familiar with. We're a little bit less familiar with stories like this one, artificially intelligent lawyer hired by its first law firm. Or this one, artificially intelligent chatbot successfully contests 160,000 parking tickets in New York and London. I love this story. This is a free service. It was created by a 19-year-old kid. It's called Do Not Pay. <laughs> or this one, artificially intelligent teaching assistant. Helps students online for an entire semester and nobody noticed. <laughs> and the reason these stories are becoming possible is because the cognitive capabilities of the computers are starting to become so good that they are now encroaching upon domains that have historically been exclusively reserved for humans, like image recognition. Image recognition is something that humans are amazing at, and computers have always been terrible at. Humans are amazing at this because we have an evolutionary imperative to be amazing at this. When you are a baby, you have two jobs, find your mom and find the boob. That is all you need to do to be successful as a baby. Those are your KPIs. And if you're successful as a baby, you are more likely to reproduce and you will pass on those mom finding and boob finding genes to your offspring and it becomes a virtuous cycle. We just get better and better at it. But a few years ago, researchers using deep learning algorithms were able to get computers to identify cats and images. So this is a massive leap forward for computer research, like huge accomplishment, mega milestone. So, but I've got a four-year-old stepson who can recognize cats no problem, and he has like no job offers, right? This is not a marketable skill. But the researchers don't stop there, and they go from being able to recognize cats in images to being able to recognize numbers in images. Again, massive leap forward, huge milestone, still not really a marketable skill, but they don't stop there either. They go from being able to recognize cats in images to being able to recognize numbers in images to being able to recognize mitosis in cancer cells, which currently requires a trained pathologist, except the computer can do it a thousand times as fast and a thousand at a time 
and will only ever get better. Every new human pathologist has to start from zero. Every new computer starts with the sum total of all the knowledge of all the previous computers, which is why these things progress exponentially. We're continually using better tools to build better tools. So that's the terror. <laughs> but it's also the opportunity. Like if we could have way better diagnostic capability, wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't you like to know if you're going to get some kind of a scan done, that the diagnosis that comes back from the scan is done by AI and it's 100% accurate, and the job of your human doctor is to talk you through your treatment options, to, share, to discuss pros and cons with you, to help your family navigate a highly uncertain and stressful time. Isn't that a better division of labor? That chatbot, the one that contested all the parking tickets, is now being used to help refugees claim asylum. This is a company that spun out of SU, it's called Matternet. It's using drones to deliver food and essential medicines to the two billion people around the world who don't have access to all season roads. And when they started this project, the drones could only carry so much and they could only travel so far and the battery would only last so long. But that technology is progressing exponentially and these guys can scale their impact while the underlying technology scales. We are entering into a world of possibility unlike anything we've ever seen before. And I want to share with you, like, really, you know, I, I told you when I went to SU, this, it, it messed with my head. It really messed with my head. It was like, uh, it just took all of these kind of disparate data points that I had. Like, I'd already heard about all the technologies we talked about. I'd heard about artificial intelligence. I'd heard about robotics. I'd heard about uh, 3D printing. I'd heard about all these things before. It wasn't that I heard about these technologies there. It was, what it did was it put together all these technologies into a new coherent narrative that was just like, oh my gosh, I get it in a totally different way now. And I want to share with you what I mean by that. So uh, I'll tell you two stories to, to kind of highlight this. So the first one has to do with 3D printing. We talked a lot about 3D printing at SU. Like I said, I'd heard about 3D printing before. You've all heard about 3D printing. Um, I knew that it existed. I did not realize until I went to SU that it has been around for almost 40 years. That was new information to me. Almost 40 years, 3D printing, oh my gosh, it's going to revolutionize everything. And what have we actually gotten? Shitty models of Yoda's head, right? This is not revolutionary. Let's be clear. There is no incumbent Yoda's head model industry that's freaking out right now because the MakerBots are coming. But so I leave SU with this new paradigm, this new coherent narrative. And a week later, I went to TED. And at TED, this guy Joseph Simone got up on stage and he was like, 3D printing is terrible. This is terrible. And the reason it's so terrible is that it's not actually 3D printing. It's 2D printing over and over again, right? You print a layer, and then another layer, and another layer, and another layer. And so as a result, there are all sorts of problems with it. Can't really do bridges, can't really do spans. You can't do objects within objects. The mechanical tolerances are terrible. The structural integrity is terrible. It's super slow, and it's super expensive. So DeSimone's like, I don't want a 3D printer that's a 2D printer over and over again. I want a 3D printer that works more like the T-1000 from Terminator 2. I want my object to just emerge from the soup, fully formed. I want it to just be the thing. And so he built it. That's what he was there to launch. This is it. It's called CLIP, Continuous Liquid Interface Production. That plate at the top pulls the object fully formed from this tray of substrate soup at the bottom. Solves every issue with current 3D printing. You can do bridges. You can do spans. You can do objects within objects. The mechanical tolerances are perfect. The structural integrity is perfect. It's 25 to 100 times faster than current 3D printing technology. So I watch him give this talk, fresh from SU, fresh with my new coherent narrative. And I had three reactions. And my first reaction was what it would have been anyway, which was like, whoa, that's really cool. Nice work. 
But my second reaction with this new paradigm was, of course, it's 25 to 100 times faster and not you know, 7% faster. Of course, as De Simone says, the next iteration is going to be 1,000 times faster because that's what an exponential curve looks like. And my third reaction was, now I get it. Now I get how 3D printing totally disrupts global manufacturing and freight. Because why would you ever pay to manufacture 20,000 of something in China and pay to ship it and pay to store it and have waste and have loss and have theft and have it go out of date when you literally can push the button and get the thing? We can no longer use the past as a means of projecting the future. Right, that's story number one. Story number two, uh, and then I'm almost at the end of this. Story number two has to do with, it's a little more radical, has to do with bioengineered milk. And so when I was at SU, we had this guy, Raymond McCauley, get up on stage. He's the digital biology guy. And he talked to us about bioengineered milk and this team that had taken like a yeast and they had genetically modified it with cow proteins and they basically brewed milk in the lab. And chemically and genetically and at a molecular level, it was milk. It was identical to milk. The only difference was it hadn't gone through a cow, right? And so, uh, and this team, they'd done this with cow milk, and they'd done this with human milk, and they'd done this with narwhal milk. Like, why narwhals? I don't know. People are weird. Uh, but so they'd made these milks, and I'm watching Raymond talk, and my reaction to him was, that sounds disgusting. Who's going to want it, right? Okay, set that to one side for a second. Late that night, I'm having an offline conversation with Salim Ismail, who's the founding executive director of SU. And we weren't talking about the milk. We were talking about uh, another company called Modern Meadow. They do bioengineered eggs. And I'll tell you what, I am a super lefty liberal hippie. Like, I need to know the name of the chicken before I'll eat an egg. And so my reaction to eggs is the same as my reaction to the milk. I'm like, that sounds disgusting. Who's going to want it? And Salim's like, Kyla, they're not targeting you. They don't care about you. They're not interested in the hippies. They don't care about the vegans. They don't even care about Whole Foods, which in the US is a substantial customer. He's like, they're after the industrial caterers who buy eggs by the thousands of kilos, and they need them in powder form, and in liquid form, and in tube form. And they need them to last longer on the shelf, and be 100% salmonella free, and total certainty of supply. And they need them to brown nicely around the edges, and taste more like egg. <laughs> and they need them to be cheaper. And by every one of those metrics, the bioengineered product wins. And I went, Shit, you're right. And then I went, actually, maybe the bioengineered milk product wins too. And then I was like, are we really taking this seriously, this staple of our economy? Do we really understand the nature of this disruptive impact? I'm not sure that we do. I'm not sure that we get collectively how important it is right now to forget linear. So I came back from SU like I had swallowed the red pill and washed it down with Kool-Aid. I was like, this is, it's so important and we all need to understand this stuff. And so I started giving talks about it. And so this is me when I graduated. That, that was me there. There's Ray, Ray up in the middle. Uh, and I shifted pretty much all my public facing talks became a version of this, Intro to Exponentials. Uh, and then we brought Salim down. Um, Salim, the founding exec director, he did a bit of a road show in New Zealand, Australia. Um, but I can tell you with my TEDx hat on that it doesn't matter how good a speaker is, a single talk does not drive behavior change. Like Salim is one of the world's best presenters. You come and watch him speak, you're like, that guy was amazing, he totally blew my mind. 
and then you go back to work the next day, right? So for me, when I did the exec program, it was like day two where I got to a point that I said, I cannot unlearn what I have learned. I'm in too deep. I can't not do something with what I've learned. So the next step was to go, okay, how can we give a critical mass of people a similarly robust immersion in this content such that you too cannot unlearn what you've learned and you're, you feel an obligation to do something with it? So the next step was to bring a, a summit to New Zealand. So last November, we shipped in a bunch of the faculty from Silicon Valley, a bunch of the same faculty that I had had at the exec program, and we ran a summit. It was a two and a half day event. It was basically a condensed version of the exec program I did. So it, it, you know, unlike a, a conference that's just a collection of ideas, this one really, it's more like a course. If it's two and a half days follows a very coherent narrative uh, across those two and a half days designed to take us through uh, a, a really profound shift in understanding of this stuff. Uh, it was a massive success in New Zealand. We had 1,400 people come along, despite the fact that the show started at 2 p.m. on a Monday and at 12.03 a.m. that day, we had a 7.8 earthquake, uh, which got me evicted from my house for a tsunami warning at 3 in the morning. It was awesome. Uh, but now we're bringing it to Australia. Uh, in February, sadly, it's to Sydney. I'm sorry, guys, but I hope you guys can come. Uh, you'll be fresh from attending PauseFest, so, uh, so you go to PauseFest and then the next week jump on a plane and come up to Sydney. Uh, as I said, we'll be covering a bunch of topics, but really it follows this coherent narrative across uh, understanding the broad scope of what we're talking about, getting a deep dive into some of the various technologies, and then understanding the implications of those technologies. Um, we have an amazing lineup of speakers. This is just a few of them. It's really an incredible group. That's Raymond McCauley. He's the guy who told me about the bioengineered milk. He's smiling because he's just put you off your lunch. Um, that's Mark Goodman. He's uh, the founder of the Future Crime Institute and the author of the book Future Crime. He's the cybersecurity guy. Uh, after you hear, hear his talk, you won't want to go on the internet ever again. Uh, uh, Edie Wiener, she's coming from New York. She's doing Future of Work. Marita Chang, you guys probably know. Uh, she was Young Australian of the Year a few years ago, doing amazing stuff with robotics and disability. Uh, David Roberts, who uh, is uh, with the military and d consults with Fortune 500 CEOs uh, all over the place. And Mandy Simpson, who used to be the Chief Operating Officer of the New Zealand Stock Exchange, and she'll, she'll be talking about blockchain. There are lots more as well. Uh, we've got three target markets for this. So the first one is uh, corporates, which is kind of the typical audience for something like this. But if we did an event where only corporates came along, that would be unsatisfying. This stuff affects everybody, not just big corporations. And so we have deeply discounted tickets for startups, educators, and nonprofits. And we have even more deeply discounted tickets for young people. So if you or someone you know is 25 or under as of the 19th of February 2018, they can come along for a radically discounted amount uh, because it's so important for them to get access to this stuff too. Uh, so what now? Get your ticket. Come along. Definitely. We'll see you uh, in Sydney. Uh, sign up for emails. And also partner with us. If you're interested in partnering in any fashion, uh, absolutely come and talk to me about that. Uh, thank you guys so much for your kind attention. You've been so great. And I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thanks. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.